Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you here today. If this is your first time with us, my name is Joe, and I get to be the lead pastor here, and I just couldn't be more thrilled about your presence here today and about what God is doing um, in the lives of those who make up this, this church. Hey, last week we started the New Testament portion of our series from the story, which is, uh, we're using this book right here as a help for us. Um, if you don't know what this is, this is uh, a book that we gave to everybody in our church and anybody who would like one who's been coming here. And if you're a first time guest with us today, we'd love to give you one as well. It's our gift to you. It's our invitation to come back and do the story with us. But we've been going through the entire Bible this year. We finished the Old Testament. We have moved on into the New Testament. And what this resource does, it takes large portions of the Bible, word for word, arranges them in chronological order, and uh, you read it just like any other other book. And it really is a great way to help absorb God's Word and to learn the story that you can trace from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So we've been going through a chapter a week, and our life groups have been studying it even further, and it's just been a really, really good thing. So like I said, last week we, we started the New Testament part of our, our story. We're in 23 today. And uh, we learned last week that the hero of our story had arrived. God stepped out of heaven, and he took on the form of a man, and that man was, was Jesus. And there's a fancy word that we use in churches that describes that process. The word is incarnation. The incarnation, which simply means what? God in flesh. That's what he did. He stepped out of heaven, and he became a man, and we know that as Jesus. Now, we saw the journey to what led up to that. Both Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, received visitors, an angel, who announced that they are going to be the parents of the Son of God. And the Bible tells us that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, this very specific prophecy, that the virgin will, be, uh, will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So the long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. People had been waiting for him for hundreds of years, but not everybody had the same expectations about what this Messiah would actually be like and what he would do. There was some people who were like, the Messiah is going to be this, and some people, the Messiah is going to be that. And we can kind of deduce from Scripture some of these different expectations. So you see, when word began to spread that Jesus just might be the long-awaited Messiah, there were those who believed that this Messiah, that Jesus, would ultimately become a king, and he would sit on the throne, and he would restore Israel to their greatness that they once had. He would be like a souped-up version of King David, who was their greatest king ever. Some people had that thought that Jesus would be that. There were others who had expectations that Jesus would be more like a judge or a warrior who would come in and run the Romans out of there. Run the Romans right out of the, the Holy Land and, and give it back to the Israelites. The political climate at the time was very oppressive to the Israelites. The Romans ruled everything. You see that all throughout the New Testament. So some had this idea that the Messiah would be like a warrior who was going to get rid of these, these Romans and restore them to the dominance that they once had before the exile. There were all kinds of ideas 
about what Jesus would be like and what he would do. But I can honestly tell you, it becomes pretty clear in this New Testament that most people completely understood that Jesus' primary mission was to save the world from their sins. They misunderstood that. Not to save the Israelites from the Romans. It was, it was a hard concept for people to, at the time, to wrap their minds around that Jesus' kingdom, his throne, would not be of this world. So, when Jesus preached, love your enemies, it was a hard message for people to swallow. When Jesus, this Messiah, would say things like this, turn the other cheek, that's not exactly what people were expecting. Is it any wonder, if you've read ahead and you know kind of about Jesus' ministry, is it any wonder that the very first people, the, the very first group of people that are so drawn to Jesus were the ones who were labeled sinners, the outcast, the down and outers, the ones that know, they understood that, that Jesus' message was of openness and, and to coming to, to him. It's not a surprise that those kind of people were so attracted to to the Messiah. Well, if you've read chapter 23 already before coming in here today, then you already know that this chapter deals with that time, which would be the earliest days of Jesus' ministry, just when he started going. And let me just say a quick word about reading. If you're not caught up in your reading, let me encourage you to get caught up this week. Um, from this point forward, as we read each chapter, it's going to be very difficult for me to cover every single detail of these chapters. So you got to read, and it will really enhance um, your, your time here at church, whether on Saturday night or Sunday morning. So come ready. Now, I say that to also say this. If you don't get it read, still come to church, okay? Just so we're on the same page. Just in case you don't get it, still come to church. We want you here. I just want to encourage you to, to get caught up on your reading. It will enhance, I promise you, it will enhance what we're doing so, so much more. So we're on chapter 23. We're looking at the earliest days of Jesus's ministry. The first person that we're introduced to in this chapter is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Who's heard of that guy before? John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a very specific role um, to play in the coming of Jesus. He was known as the front runner of Christ. He was the one that was supposed to go before the Lord, make his path straight, prepare the way, get people ready, and to do so, he started baptizing people, and he was also the one that got to be baptized, uh, they got to baptize Jesus. Now, how could I describe John to you? The, the, the Bible describes him kind of like a wild man. I mean, let's be honest, he probably was. He, he, he wore camel's hair for clothing, and he ate bugs. That's pretty wild, okay? That's pretty wild. I don't know if this is an appropriate um, association, but John kind of strikes me like what, like a modern-day street preacher just a little bit. Have you ever been walking through the streets of a big city and you come across a corner and some guy's got a megaphone and he's screaming things about the kingdom of heaven is near, return or burn, you're going to die, or do you know Jesus? And most people just kind of like, mm. and us too a little bit, even though we may agree with his message. There's something a little putting off about that just a little bit. To me, I think that was kind of John. He might be the, the first street preacher of the New Testament. He was out there, but guess what? Eventually, John's message began to take hold. People started to listen. Who is this wild, crazy hair, bug-eating guy, and what is this message that he's, that he's, and all of a sudden, John had a following. 
people were coming out to where he was, and he was baptizing them for the forgiveness of their sins. There was something they began to connect a dot, that there's something I need to take care of in my life. Well, this caught the attention of the religious leaders of the day, and so they sent a crew out there to John, and they're like, who are you? What are you all about? Who, who are you? And John replies, he said, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. And these religious leaders would know what he's talking about. This is exactly what the prophet said he would say. This is what Isaiah and Malachi, they predicted he would say. And so there was a connection all of a sudden. These religious leaders go, hmm, you think you're that guy. You think you're that guy who is paving the way for the Messiah so one day, Jesus comes onto the scene, and uh, I'm skipping a few details. I trust you've read your storybook this week. And Jesus is like, John, you need to baptize me. And of course, John was like, yeah. No, John was like, I can't baptize you. You're the one that needs to baptize me. You're the guy. I can't even untie your sin. I'm not worthy to do that. And Jesus like, no, this is good. And so after some convincing, John baptizes Jesus, the Messiah. It's like this moment where this great announcement that Jesus is now on the scene. John has done his job. The Messiah is here. And if you've read the chapter, it's a fascinating scene. The Bible says that the heavens opened up. What in the world did that look like? I don't know. I would have loved to have been one of the people along the banks of the Jordan River that day watching this unfold. The, the heavens opened up, and the description the Bible gives us is that the Holy Spirit descended down upon Jesus like a dove. Now, you can just use your imagination of what that would have been like. And then, to top all that off, there was a voice that came from the sky. We know that voice to be God's voice. And what did he say? This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, wouldn't that have been something to observe? It would have been, been awesome. And catch this. This is one of the few times in the entire story where we see the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's something that we refer to in our words as the Trinity, it's, it's one of the few times to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit appear at the same time. It's a pretty awesome moment. There's another time that John the Baptist, he sees Jesus, and he makes this, this, this loud declaration to anybody who would listen. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a strange thing to say at that time. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we can kind of put some dots together, but still, that phrase does not impact us today the same way that it would impact a Jewish person who heard John say it. You see, here in the Old Testament, only the blood of a young and unblemished innocent lamb could be used to make sacrifice for sin. So John is making a reference to sacrifice. Look, the Lamb of God. People would have connected sacrifice to that. Do you recall back when we were going through the Old Testament, the Lord provided a way for their sins to be atoned for. How did he do that? Through the shedding of blood, through animal sacrifices. This was still going in John's day. Here's how it would happen. In those days, a man would bring a lamb. There was very specific instructions in the Bible of what this lamb had to be like, but he would take it to the priest and the priest would place his head on the lamb of this, 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 the head of this lamb, this innocent animal. And in that moment, there would be a transference 
of that man's guilt, that man's sin and shame, onto that innocent lamb. This is how God set it up. The priest would then slice the throat of the lamb and collect the lamb's blood in a bowl. And, and he would take that bowl and he would put it upon the altar for the forgiveness of that man's sins. See, all the high schoolers just popped up. Ooh, interesting. John is announcing to the world that Jesus is the ultimate lamb, the lamb of God, the final sacrifice for our sins. This is what John is saying, that Jesus would sacrifice himself, not for one man's sins, but for the sins of the world. It's, it's foreshadowing, if you will, that this man, Jesus, will give up his life. He will shed his blood for all of us. Now, most of us know the rest of that story because we're familiar with it. Jesus did go to the cross. But for the people that listened to John say it on this day, they had no idea that three years from now this would come true. So we learn after Jesus' baptism that he goes off into the wilderness. And the Bible tells us he spends 40 days and nights there. He's fasting. And at the end of that fasting, that's when the enemy comes and tempts him. Friends, I'm going to let you know, I've walked around that desert that Jesus was in. I spent 20 minutes there. And I'm like, back to the air-conditioned bucks, bus, folks. This is too hot. I don't know how Jesus spent 40 days in that wilderness. It was, it was hot. We learn in this chapter that Jesus meets a Samaritan woman uh, by Jacob's well, and, and Jesus offers her living water. We see Jesus go around and he casts out demons. He heals a lot of people. He calls 12 men who we know as his disciples to be a part of this ministry, to follow him around and, and to join him in this work. But even though Jesus was doing all these amazing things and having these great conversations and changing people's lives, still he was mostly un misunderstood by those around him. Multiple times in the scriptures, we read about these questions that the disciples had for Jesus. Here's one of the questions they had. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus had a knack for calming storms. One time, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they all gave their best shot at an answer. The Bible says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It's misunderstood a lot. It took a while for people to connect the dots, and I would say it wouldn't be until much later that people started to really understand and fully grasp why Jesus came. So in our chapter this week, if you haven't turned over there, please turn to page 326 in your storybooks. That's where we're going to, to spend the next couple moments. I, I want us to zero in this morning, and I want us to look at a conversation that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't quite know what he thinks just yet of Jesus, but he desperately wants to figure him out. 
And let me tell you this, by the time their conversation is over, there is no mistaking what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to this earth for. This is such an important conversation. We have to understand what they're talking about. On page 326 is where we're going to start reading. This is also, if you're following along in your Bible, this is John chapter 3, verse 1. And of course, we'll have all the scriptures on the screens behind me so you can easily follow along where we're at says this, there, there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, I don't want to get into a whole lot of details here of exactly what that means, but basically, if you can understand that Nicodemus is a religious leader of the day, you pretty much have him pegged. He is an ardent student of the law. Um, Pharisees were the know-it-alls of the Bible, if you would. If you would say it like that, they were, they were supposed to know everything in the law. They were also supposed to be an example to all the people around them of what it looks like to obey the law. So when people would see them out on the streets, people would go, ooh, there's a holy man. There's a man that really understands what God wants out of his life. They were respected, they were honored, and as we get into the New Testament even further, that went way too far. Jesus is going to have many moments of uh, confrontation with these Pharisees. But here's this guy, Nicodemus. Um, he's got questions about Jesus, he, and so he comes to him. And the next thing we learn is that he came to Jesus at night. Now this is a very interesting little detail. Why did he come at night? Why would Nicodemus want to have this conversation at night? The Bible doesn't tell us why it took place at night, but I believe, this is my opinion, I believe that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was genuinely seeking answers. But at the same time, he didn't necessarily want to be associated with Jesus just yet. At any point in any of this, Nicodemus could have come up to Jesus in broad daylight and had some sincere questions. Say, Jesus, I want to have a sincere conversation with you. The only problem is, what would his friends say? I mean, if Nicodemus is having this conversation in broad daylight, his Pharisee buddies might go, is he actually giving Jesus the time of day? Nicodemus has got some questions. He's not ready to jump on board the Jesus train just yet, but... He wants to meet with Jesus. So this conversation happens at night. Here's what it says next. He came to Jesus at night and he said this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. This is not a trick conversation. Jesus is going to have plenty of trick conversations with a lot of Nicodemus' buddies over the next couple of years. But not this. This is genuine. And the first thing he says, he calls Jesus a rabbi. This is an acknowledgement that he is a teacher. He would, Nicodemus would not be calling him rabbi if he didn't honestly think that Jesus was a teacher. Okay, and rabbis had followers, so Jesus had followers. He's acknowledging who Jesus was. And he also um, acknowledges this truth. This is fascinating to me. We know you are from God. We know you're from God. That's a big deal to say that. So we know you're from God. How does he deduce that, that Jesus is from God? He says, because nobody could do the things that you're doing if you weren't from God. Nicodemus has been sitting on the sidelines. He's been quietly observing everything that Jesus is doing. And he goes, that man's a teacher. He's come from God. And I know he's come from God because he couldn't do or say the things that he's doing and saying if it didn't come from God. And that, my friends, has caused Nicodemus to ask a lot of questions. 
I think there's, and this is, again, some of this is my opinion. I want to be honest with you. The Bible doesn't directly say, this is what I deduce from Scripture. I feel like it's at this moment that Nicodemus um, probably feels like he's missing something. Jesus seems to know something about God that Nicodemus does not. Nicodemus has spent an entire lifetime learning about God, trying to follow God, keeping all the commandments and rules and all the traditions that were required of him. He's a respected person. He's a respected elder and ruler of the people. But I think deep down inside, Nicodemus feels like he's missing something and he knew it. And maybe that describes some of you today. I don't know. Maybe some of you came into this place today because You've got something in common with Nicodemus. You've spent your lifetime trying to be a good person. You've tried to keep the rules. You, you try to get to church whenever you can. You try to not cuss very much. You try to be an honest person. You try to do all those things, and you're like, yeah, I'm trying to be a good person, but maybe, maybe, deep down inside, and only you know where that is, you're going, something, something's missing there, and I wonder what it is. And you look at other people, and you're like, why does that person have something about their walk with God that I don't seem to have or feel? What's missing? Maybe you've heard some things and you feel some things and maybe just come up, I don't know where I'm coming up short. And maybe if that's you, you've got something in common with Nicodemus and maybe you should pay very close attention to the whole conversation they have together. The next thing that happens, Jesus replies to Nicodemus and he says this on page 326. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That, my friends, was a very confusing statement to Nicodemus. And if we were there too, it'd probably be pretty confusing to us based on what we know, knew at the time. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What, what did he want Nicodemus to know? You know, this phrase, born again Christian, have you ever heard that phrase before? I'm a born again Christian. That really became a popular phrase back in the 1960s. It was, it was kind of a phrase that sets you apart from other Christians. Like, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. I mean, are you a born again Christian? Back then, there was some kind of distinction like, you're not just a Christian. No, you've got to be a born-again Christian. Don't just say that you're a Christian because you were born in America and you live in a Christian nation and you raise your American flag on the 4th of July. That doesn't make you a Christian. Are you a born-again Christian? So this phrase really kind of took on some steam. What did people mean back then with this distinction? They were saying, don't just be a Christian in name only. They were saying things like, no, have you made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ? No, it, it's like that extra, don't just say it, do you mean it? Are you a born-again Christian? When Jimmy Carter was running for president back in 1976, the, you know, the, the, there, was a, there was a huge buzz in the air because when Jimmy Carter was giving an interview, he was talking to people, he referred to himself as a born-again Christian. Anybody remember that? All right, bless you, brother, the only one with this hand up. So people all of a sudden are going, we've got a guy running for president who says he's a Christian. No, no, no. He says he's a born-again Christian. And that meant something back then. But what did Jesus mean when he said to Nicodemus, 
You must be born again. I can tell you this, that when Jesus said that, he was not referring to how we label ourselves. When Jesus said you've got to be born again, he was not talking about some catchphrase or something that we put meaning upon. And we've got to be real careful not to associate what we think born again Christian is as the same thing that Jesus says. So what was Jesus saying to Nicodemus? That no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, here's how the conversation continued. This is on page 326. This is John chapter 3 verse 4. He said, Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus is not connecting the dots here. His mind goes directly to the physical act of giving birth. He's like, Jesus, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're telling me that, that if, if I'm going to be what I'm supposed to be, I have to be born again. I don't understand what you're talking about. How can um, I become a baby again, enter back into my mother's womb, and be born a second time? This doesn't make sense. It's interesting. Every time I read this passage in Scripture, I don't know why my brain does this, but my brain reminds me of a movie I saw that starred Brad Pitt, and it's called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Have you seen this movie? It's a weird movie. I'm not recommending. Don't go out there and, and watch this movie unless you want to. But I remember thinking, this is a really weird movie. If you haven't seen it, it's about a boy who was born as an old man. And as he ages in natural years, his body gets younger. And so he's born in his 80s, but by the time he dies as an old man, he's an infant again, ready to be born again. And I would guess maybe in Hollywood, you might be able to experience a rebirth like that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Maybe in the movies, but not here. Then Jesus said this to Nicodemus. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. Jesus is saying, you've got to be born naturally and there's got to be something else that takes place. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus on a belief system that he has believed his entire life. Nicodemus, do you want to go to heaven? Nicodemus, do you want to be everything that God wants you to be? Then there has to be a transformation take place in your life. That's what Jesus is telling him. There's got to be a transformation. Sure, you're going to be born, but you've got to be like born again, a transformation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's more than being a nice person, Nicodemus. I'm sure you're a nice person. It's more than keeping all the rules. Nicodemus, I'm sure you've kept all the rules really well. It's more than anything physically that you could do. There has to be, Nicodemus, a spiritual transformation in your life. A spiritual rebirth and become something brand new. This is what Jesus means by born again. Nicodemus, do you want to know what's missing in your life? You want to know what's missing? You've never had the spiritual transformation. That's what's missing. He goes on to say this. Nicodemus asked this question, how can this be? How can this be? How can this rebirth take place? I don't understand. How can this be? And Jesus answers him, and in his answer, he offers us one of the clearest declarations of who Jesus was and why he came. 
page 327, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That verse is probably the most memorized verse in the Bible. And it also describes for us, in the most simplest of terms, the intersection between our lower story and God's upper story. Jesus went on to say this to Nicodemus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How is this salvation process going to happen? Through the Son of God. Whoever believes in him. Believes in who? Believes in God's Son, Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This transformation that Jesus is talking about, this being born again, has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus and your decision to follow him. And I want to be very clear about this because overarching, what we learn through the rest of the New Testament is that it's not enough for a person to just simply grow up in a religious family. It's not enough for a person to learn about Jesus Christ from his or her parents and then to live according to those teachings. That's not enough. It's not enough to simply go through the routine of going to church and singing some songs and eating some donuts. But rather, every person has to make this personal decision to follow Christ. Nicodemus being a Pharisee, most likely believed that keeping all of the rules was good enough for God to be pleased with him. And I think that's an easy way for us to think. I think that's an easy thing for us to slip into. I just need to be a good person. I just need to do my good deed for the day and God will love and he'll accept me. Do you ever find yourself thinking about that? I gotta be good I gotta be really good for God to accept me, but can I let you in on a reality that I think many of you, the very reason for why you're here today is because you need to hear this, that God already loves you and God already accepts you. That's a reality. You don't have to earn God's love. We spend a lifetime trying to earn God's love. You don't have to earn God's love. It's already there. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? For God so loved the world. He wasn't talking about our planet. He was talking about you and me. The whole reason this was set in motion is because God loves you. You don't have to earn God's love. He's already given his love. It's there. What he desires from us is faith. What he desires from us is to believe in him, to experience a spiritual rebirth, to be born again by shedding off that which is old, that which holds us back, that which is mired in sin, and to experience a new life that can only be had in Jesus Christ, a new life that is in God's grace and is a part of his family. That's what it means by being born again. It's time to get into a new family, get rid of the old, come to the new. So, 
Here's a question that I wonder about. Whatever happened to old Nicodemus? Did he experience this rebirth? Did he become born again? Um, did he live differently after that? Did Nicodemus find what he was looking for? Were Jesus' answers satisfactory to his question? The Bible doesn't say, oddly enough. You, you can probably flip the page going, oh, what over happened to old Nicodemus? The Bible, it's, it's open-ended. But here's my opinion. Here's what I hope happened. I hope that he did. I, I hope that Nicodemus was radically changed as a result of this conversation with Christ at night and that he had his spiritual eyes open. We do know this. We do know that Nicodemus shows up again several times throughout the New Testament. Um, Nicodemus, the way I see it, I think he put his reputation on the line in the book of John chapter 7 verse 50 when the religious leaders were trying to figure out a way to plot against Jesus and to kill him. And it seems like Nicodemus challenges that in John chapter 7 verse 50. John, uh, Nicodemus shows up again in John chapter 19. This is after Jesus had died on the cross. And he shows up with a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember his role in the New Testament? They went together to Pilate and they asked if they could have Jesus' body that, you know, taken down off the cross. Can we have the body and can we bury the body? It was Nicodemus who provided all of the herbs and all of the wrappings for Jesus' body. That's interesting to me. Did something change inside of Nicodemus over the course of Jesus' ministry? I think about it like this. He went to Jesus at night, but now in broad daylight, he's asking for Jesus' body. That tells me a whole lot. It tells me a whole lot. Nicodemus came and he sought Jesus in the darkness, but he is proclaiming his faith in the light with this request. I think in Jesus' death, this is my opinion, I think Nicodemus saw how far Jesus was willing to go so that he could be born again. The Bible tells us that uh, a number of the Pharisees, after Jesus rose to life, followed the disciples. They became believers after the resurrection. Was Nicodemus one of them? I don't know. I hope so. But more importantly than what Nicodemus did is this question. What will you do? What do you believe? And have you experienced the rebirth that Jesus is talking about? What do you believe?